the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. From policy to culture, principles to politics, this is The Seth Leibson Show. Well, welcome back. I've been looking forward to this all day as we head into hour two of our daily three-hour tour. It is a delight to bring back my older, perhaps it's better to say, longtime friend, Stephen Hayward. Steve Hayward, many of you know from the Powerline blog. He is uh, the author of several books, most recently, M. Stanton Evans, Conservative Wit, Apostle of Freedom, several books on Reagan, a professor at Berkeley. Steve, how the heck are you, brother? I am great, Seth. Great to catch up with you. You you want something fun? Maybe this is unfair to do to you, but um, this is kind of a fun experiment. Maybe you've done it. I was uh, I was looking over um, at an order of some of the books you were writing on Amazon, and at the bottom of Amazon, it says on you um, uh, books uh, books uh, by similar authors that other people have purchased. Do you know what the first two are? People who buy your books, no. the other two, first two, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's autobiography. And a book called Radio's Greatest of All Time, just out, a uh, collection of Rush Limbaugh's broadcasts. Not bad company. No, not bad at all. I'll take that. And I think BB's back. <laughs> Last I read, I think he's I think he's going to be the next prime minister, if I'm reading the Israeli yeah. uh, news right today. Yeah. Not, none of which is why I wanted you to come on today. You had a great post on the oral arguments that took place in the Supreme Court yesterday. And you seized on a on a little bit of a colloquy between Seth Waxman, who was representing Harvard, and uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Would you like Would you like to tell the audience what took place there? Yeah, I, I'm happy to. Uh, just setting the scene briefly, I was in a long car trip yesterday, so I got to listen to all five hours of the oral argument, and it was really stunning to listen to the whole thing. That, by the way, is much much longer than a normal Supreme Court case. Yeah and was almost twice as long as it was originally scheduled for oral arguments. Yep. So Chief Justice Roberts did something unusual yesterday. He went into overtime yep. and let the whole thing play out, which I think was to the disadvantage of Harvard and the University of North Carolina. I think the longer the argument went on, the worse the case got Agreed. for Agreed. But, uh, but, you know, a lot of people are down on Chief Justice Roberts because of uh, his ruling in Obamacare 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. That was a disappointment. And then also just a few months ago, trying to rescue Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. in the uh, in the Dobbs case, which mm-hmm. seemed like a foolish thing to do. Mm-hmm. But you know, on this issue of race, he's always been rock solid mm-hmm. uh, and has always uh, had very bold rulings against it. So yesterday, he gets into a, a quite a sharp back and forth with Seth Waxman, who is the attorney for Harvard. Mm-hmm. By the way, I'm sure Harvard has spent two million dollars on him so far. In legal oh, I used to work in a firm where he used to work. I'm sure of it. <laughs> I am yeah, sure of it. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, you know how that all. Works, I didn't get right? that so, money, but Waxman did. Okay, all right. Yeah, yes, that's right. Yes, yes. Well, he's 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 been point on this for Harvard yeah. since the case was initially filed seven eight years ago. Okay, um, and uh, I, I think there's. I don't know if there's bad blood between him and the chief, but I know they've had some sharp exchanges in the past yeah. when Waxman has appeared before the Roberts Court. That's right. 
so the problem is, is uh, sorry to go on too long, but no, I you're good. To really appreciate appreciate this. It's good. Is the defenders of race based admissions? They were they were they were incoherent and contradictory all day yesterday. They kept saying, "Look, race is a very minor factor. It's one among forty things. It's really tiny." Hardly matters at all. We don't really pay attention to it seriously. But then the next sentence is always, but it would be the end of the world to get rid of it. Right, right. Which gave away the whole game. And, you know, several justices were after them all day about, about this in various effective ways. But Roberts was the best because he's going after and saying, well, now, you know, you're being vague about this. You're, you're, you're being invasive. Uh, you, you won't admit that you discriminate. Uh, and and Sackler was very sharp on this. No, I, I reject your premise to discriminate on the basis of race in any way whatsoever. So finally, Roberts pins him against the wall and says, well, it's, it's a small tip mm-hmm. when people, when things are very close, right? Mm-hmm. And Waxman, I think, committed a huge blunder. Mm-hmm. I think he goes at the blunder. Mm-hmm. He said, well, if you have two supremely qualified candidates, never mind that that's inaccurate, but never mind. If you have two supremely qualified candidates, Race might be the tipping factor in the same way that if the Harvard Radcliffe Orchestra needs an <laughs> oboe player that year, they might select that person. And Roberts didn't even let him finish the sentence. They were really polite yesterday. But Roberts, before he finished the sentence, he says, sarcastically says, yeah, we didn't fight the Civil War for oboe players. Yes, that's right. I'd and, love- you know, I- I was driving in my car. I let out a whoop. Uh-huh. Yeah. I almost drove off the road. Yeah. And then Roberts went on to say this was about discrimination on the basis of race. And pretty, it's pretty clear that he thought that uh, Waxman was trivializing the importance and significance of what was being debated in the case. Mm-hmm. And I, that was the high point of the whole day for me. I, I think you, know, you shouldn't predict outcomes of cases based on oral arguments. Everyone rightly says, and I've been joking all day today. Let's wait till the draft opinion is leaked next spring before we predict what's going to happen. Uh, I, but my feeling was is that that was the moment you knew the case was lost uh, if indeed Harvard loses as they should. I think everything you said is right, and I'm just thinking historically. You know, we've had so many fits and starts with race-based affirmative action programs. I, you know, when it comes to education, higher education, is it fair to say it really kind of got its big start with Bakke circa 78 in California and UC Davis, maybe? At least yes. that's at yes. least what gave us this nonsense about diversity as, as, as an issue to, take in, to, to, to allow you to take account of race. And we've had mixed opinions. You know, you read the Supreme Court opinion, right. Steve, it's really hard to find you know, to add up the concurrences and the dissents on all of them ever since. Although I was just thinking on the ride in this morning, uh, this afternoon, the way the court is structured right now, and given what you heard from not just Roberts, but Thomas and Alito yesterday, maybe we are done with this at long last. Maybe ding dong, this witch is dead this term. Maybe, maybe. What's your thought? Yeah, that that is exactly what I think. The way I put it is... Um First of all, a lot of interesting issues here we can talk about, sure. uh, but even radio is not long enough to do it to do them properly. Uh, there's all those cases that you mentioned. There's the two Fisher cases. There's Grutter, all the rest of that, all very important. I think the story arc goes from Bakke to now. And so for listeners who don't know Bakke, because I was in college at the time. I was and, thinking and, you were uh, probably around at the time and watching yeah, it closely. And, yeah, yeah. You know, what Bakke said was, no, you may not have racial quotas, explicit racial quotas. But Powell said, Justice Powell, in this sort of hinge opinion, you could consider race as a factor for universities who say they want diversity mm-hmm. in their student body. And 
that, by the way, birthed the whole diversity monster we have right, now. Right. Now, I think at the time, 45 years ago, people thought, that's the right outcome. We shouldn't have quotas. A public opinion has always been against fixed quotas. But, you know, allowing people to consider race, I think most people thought, yeah, that's, that sounds plausible. I think that's what most a majority of people thought. Well, since then, we've seen how this has gone. And mm-hmm. now it's hardened into this rigid ideology, uh, metastasizing the critical race theory. And I think now it's clear in public opinion that public hates this stuff. I think now the court, having tried to trim this a little bit while still allowed, allowing it to go on, is ready to follow public opinion as it did in the civil rights cases in the 50s, and mm-hmm. say, enough is enough. Mm-hmm. We're going to call an end to this. Mm-hmm. I think that's the story. That's Occam's razor. You know, what, they take the simplest explanation. I think that's what's going to happen here. I mean, as you and your listeners know, every time affirmative action in, in college admissions has been put on the ballot, a majority votes to abolish it. Uh, the opinion polls show that, uh, that race-conscious admissions is unpopular by three to one. It's not even close. Uh, and, and so, you know, to the left, it says, ah, is, you know, democracy should follow what the will of the people want. Well, <laughs> the democratic outcome right now would be for the court to end all this. You know, that's one of the untold stories or underreported stories of the 2020 election. I hate to tell you, I hate, I hate to speak California with you being the expert, but as I recall, in 2020, California doubled down on that Ward Connolly Civil Rights Initiative, uh, ending racial preferences in higher ed and hiring. Aren't I, am I right about I think I'm right. Liberal yeah. California. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's really quite significant because, you know, the original Prop 209, it was called. That's right. I think 1996. I want to say, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it's, you know, 20, more than 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And it passed, I think, 54 to 46. So, yep. you know, solid win, but yep. a landslide, I guess. Well, the liberals who run the state now thought, we're going to try and repeal that on the ballot and... It lost by an even bigger margin. It lost, I think, 56 56. Oh, the doubling down was even bigger, huh? Yes. In other words, Larger, the, the, most, yeah. the most recent election by a much further left-leaning election. You know, Joe Biden won the state by, what, 800 million votes. I forget, but millions right. of votes. <laughs> 800 million uh, votes by his math, <laughs> right. by his count, probably. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah, no, it was, you know, and, and, you know, this thing, in other words, you know, millions of, literally millions of people who voted for Joe Biden in California voted against reinstalling racial preferences in in the college admissions in California. And it shocked the liberals and the state, uh, and it's pretty funny to listen you, to. You almost, i got to take a quick break. If I can keep you one more sure. segment on the other side, I want to sure. get your sense of where we are based on some of your recent autobi- uh, some of your recent political biographies, Steve. But you almost get the sense, listening to the argument, reading the briefs, you almost get the sense that not even sec- Seth Waxman believes this stuff anymore. You almost get the sense they just, this jig is up. They don't even really believe it anymore. I, I think you get that sense. I think I get yeah. it. All right. Steve Hayward from the Powerline blog, University of California at Berkeley, and uh, author of several books, most recently, they're just fantastic books. Most recently, his book on M. Staten Evans. Um, we'll be right back. I want to talk to him about another political biography he did with regard to someone I was quoting earlier, Harry Jaffa. Steve and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. It's a delight to have Stephen Hayward with us. Steve is obviously over at the Powerline blog. He is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, and just a prodigious author of several books, historical and um, his, uh, intellectual history as well, his most recent on Stan Evans. But I wanted to ask you, Steve, if I could a little bit about 
uh, the previous book to that, your penultimate book, um, Patriotism is Not Enough. You, you, Harry Jaffa, Walter Burns, and the arguments that redefined American conservatism. Harry and Walter being two of the more deeply uh, intellectual um, founders of the modern conservative movement, if, that, if, that's, if, if, if you'll accept that description of them. Sure. Harry, our teacher, wrote, on the um, anniversary on, in 1976 on the bicentennial, he opened his book on that on, on that topic by saying something very close to in 1776, this country was so to speak nothing, promising to become everything. Uh, 200 years later, having become almost everything, we are looking forward to perhaps becoming nothing. And I can't get that out of my head, especially as we're staring down 2026. If yeah. if the old man were around today, Steve, what what I mean, a lot has changed since seventy six. A lot has changed since he passed away. What twenty fifteen? I think. Um, yeah. A lot has changed. The world has moved fast. America has moved fast. What what do you think he'd say today? He would say, "I told you so," <laughs> because because he did tell us so. Yeah. Uh, here's what I mean by that: yeah. he would not be surprised at where we are or why, and he actually predicted it. Uh, quite precisely. So roll back, uh, this will be brief, but roll back your mind for about 30 years. The Berlin Wall came down, the Soviet Union dissolved, and remember that everyone was celebrating, and you know what's coming next, the end of history. Right. Democracy had won, free markets had won, uh, going to be peace and progress all around the world. And look for a few years, it kind of looked that way. The left was in radical retreat everywhere. Mm-hmm. And Jaffa wrote an essay at the time called Political Philosophy and Political Reality, and he said... Yeah, it's great the Soviet Union is gone and good for us, but things may be about to get worse. Mm -hmm. And he said, we're deluding ourselves to think that this really means the end of history, and a long, detailed explanation why. But the conclusion of that essay, which I think maybe you can find at the Claremont Institute website somewhere, Mm -hmm. Political Philosophy and Political Reality, he said things are about to get more dangerous. In fact, here's the last sentence, Jeff. I just had it handy. He said, the struggle for the preservation of Western civilization has not ended but instead has entered a new and possibly more dangerous phase. Why more dangerous? He said, oddly enough, or ironically enough, the the demise of Soviet Union and Soviet communism released the intellectual energies of the left of being connected to a physical regime that threatened us with missiles. And it was going to come back, he said. It was going to come back in the same essential form, but with new names. And so, sure enough, today... You know, if you follow what goes on on campus, there's this attack on neoliberalism mm-hmm. that's grew up around the year 2000. Mm-hmm. That's really an attack on Reagan and Thatcher and Milton Friedman on economics. Uh, and then critical race theory, yeah. simply Marxism on steroids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and come back with a vengeance, and it's captured the Democratic Party, much worse than it was in Reagan's time. Uh, and so, you know, like I say, Jaffa said, look out. Uh, these people aren't gone. They're going to go underground for a while. They're going to come back worse than ever. And we're ill-equipped to handle it, which I think has also been true. I almost wonder. I'm just thinking as you speak, Steve, and I hadn't thought about that 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 essay of his. But it seems to me that there's some kind of interesting mirror image of what his teacher Leo Strauss was saying shortly after we defeated the Nazis. It's right. it seems almost it's a parallel argument. Strauss was predicting that the relativism that stood up the Third Reich that was being imported into the West would make it a much more, I don't know, insidious thing or at least something to be warned about 
the way Harry was warning about the, fa- the fall of Marxism abroad in 1988-89 as becoming a more insidious thing here. I wonder if, if, if I'm on to anything. I'm, I'm doing this quickly and just thinking off the top, oh, yeah. playing off you. No, you're quite right. I mean, what Faust said, to restate it in simple terms, was he wrote this in the late 1940s, right? He said that we defeated Germany on the battlefield, but we didn't defeat them in the classroom. Right. right. You know, we've, we've assimilated German ideas of relativism, essentially, right. moral relativism and nihilism. Right. And what Jaffa wrote in 1976 on the bicentennial of the Declaration was we still haven't got it clear in our heads what the Declaration is about and what the country's about, and that's a problem. It's worse now. So you mentioned 2026. That will be the 250th anniversary of the Declaration. Semi-sesquitennial, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. And I'm looking forward to this with both hope and dread. Uh, hope for the obvious reason that we should still cherish it for the right reasons and for its real teachings. And dread for what is no doubt going to come at us from the media and academia. The media academic complex will rubbish it, of course. Uh, the New York Times will do, uh, you know, a six-week series on how evil a declaration was and why it's obsolete and should be rubbish. Um, and, and that will be taught in our school for our kids. So, you know, that's... You that's know what might be are. fun? It might be fun if you had me over at your house overlooking on your balcony and we did a barbecue <laughs> and wine. I would love to celebrate it with you, Steve. But you know what? It dawns on me. With Harry Jaffa lamenting that, that as he did and him lamenting that Brown versus Board never quite got it right... And the Supreme yeah. Court today, sitting on top of this big college admissions racial preferences issue, you know, maybe the Supreme Court, maybe, maybe, maybe at long last, they might do what Harry was recommending and look back to that old John Marshall Harlan, uh, John Harlan dissent in in Plessy, and maybe, maybe this will be the key to ending the nonsense when it comes to critical race theory and race preferences in America. Maybe, 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 just to bring it back to where we started, huh? Yeah, well, you know, uh, certainly uh, Clarence Thomas and Justice Alito will go that way, yep, I think. those would I think be the we two. Can be, right. Now, we, I think we can be encouraged by both the Dobbs decision, which, uh, you know, went further than it had to. Uh, it might have gone further still, I think. But point is, is that was a pretty bold decision. Yep. And then a couple other decisions last term were very bold. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we're used to, uh, the conservative wins at the court in the last 20 years have been narrow and have limited application, but... Some new things happened this last term that should give us hope that the court is finally going to say, let's live up to our role like we had back under Justice uh, John Marshall in the early 19th century. Right. In this case, they're, they're, they I hope they will do that. They may disappoint us on those. The right outcome may come from the case. I think it will. But whether they just rule that, well, it's a violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, that's true, but I hope they get to the 14th Amendment, yeah. which, which and that's where it needs to reach. That's and, where it needs to reach. Did I misspeak? Did and, I say John Marshall when I meant John Marshall Harlan? I, if I misspoke, I'm sorry. I didn't mean Yeah, to. no, you said it right. Uh, okay. I was trying to, you know, uh, you're right. Okay. I, 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 I said it in the previous hour. You know, he's the one who said in Plessy's dissent. Right. In his dissent in Plessy, our Constitution is colorblind and knows neither caste nor race. Yep. And, yeah, yeah. You know, that was the minority opinion that has never been embraced. Never been rejected by the liberals never. over the years. Exactly so right. It would it would be great if we got that. Boy, if, uh, if yeah, that if we could float that one up, you betcha. Well, Steve, you uh, you are always full of lift. Uh, you are encouraging and encouraging in others. I thank you for your brain, your scholarship, your time, and also your friendship, sir. Thank you for everything. Thank you for being with well, us this you. afternoon. Well, thank you, Seth. You betcha. I am Seth Liebson, and we will be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. We've been talking a lot about education for the past several weeks um, and over the past several months now, been talking about just an impressive group of moms, particularly who have uh, rolled up their sleeves and decided they're going to run for school board and they are going to start fixing not only education, but the cultural institutions that the progressives have been marching through. Uh, without our attention being paid. Karen Werner, someone I have been supporting for some time, she is paying attention. She is running for Scottsdale Unified School Board. You can uh, check her website out at com. She spells her last name W-E-R-N-E-R for com. Karen, thanks for coming back on the show. How's it going out there? Well, thanks for having me, Seth. Things are going really, really well. I am out uh, along with Amy Carney. We are uh, pounding pavement every day. We go out and talk to voters and uh, hear what they want in their schools. And, you know, my background with special schools is, you know, I've had three kids graduate. My youngest just graduated in May. And um, when my oldest graduated in 2014, I felt like she really got a great merit-based education. And then here we are eight years later. I have just lost the decline in how our kids are being educated. And, you know, when my son came home saying that, you know, he didn't have to have the same traditions or values as his family does, and, you know, you build your family around your friends, I just thought, my gosh, what is going on? And I I really didn't connect with that until COVID, and we started seeing what was happening behind the scenes within the curriculum and just that national narrative that's coming into our schools. And it's super unfortunate because we do have some excellent teachers, actually a lot of excellent teachers and administrators in our schools, but the stuff is still seeping in. And um, we, our community wants a traditional academic education for our kids where, you know, families want to send their kids to the neighborhood schools, not to have to pull them out and put them in other places. And frankly, that's, you know, what I'm committed to doing is just restoring the traditional academics and, I may have shared this the last time I was here. Uh, I'm a woman of action. So yep. when our country was shut down and classes on Zoom and there was no sports or extracurricular activities, I jumped into action and rallied 140 parents and was able to get sports restarted and extracurricular activities restarted in 2020, which uh, some of the administrators told me that if I hadn't done that, we would have had none of that in 2020. And that was really the pivotal turning point for me to, to jump into this race and and, um, you know, restore some normalcy to our district. Well, you really have. I mean, I go to a lot of political events. You say you're out there talking to voters all the time. I don't think I have been to a single political event. I go to several a week where either you or Amy hasn't been. Maybe you're dividing up the labor, but the fact that you two are doing this, Amy Carney and yourself, Karen, it just hats off to you. You know, we have been, um, for 20 or so years, I used to do a lot of work with Reagan's former education secretary, William Bennett, and people would ask, you know, what can I do to help fix the schools? He would say, going on 20, 25, 30 years now, he would say, run for school board, run for school board. People don't realize how important and how the decisions are made at these school boards. And my gosh, it took about 19 years for that message to sink in. But by golly, you guys are doing it. And we are so proud of you and thankful for you for doing it. Um, as I said, you know, you're talking about academic excellence. We pay for that. We are promised it. We expect it. And uh, we're not getting it. On top of not getting it, we're getting a lot of stuff that schools just don't have any business doing, don't we, Karen? 
That is true. There's a lot of social activism and the social emotional learning that's just coming in. It is literally just suffocating our academics and it's, it's really pushing our academics to the bottom. And some of the things I was hearing from my own kids and from other kids was that, you know, oh, they don't really care about um, the grades or they don't really care about that. And so instead of having excellence in everything that you do from punctuation to neatness and so on, that's getting pushed to the side. And then, you know, I met with an administrator, gosh, it was early this summer, and I was really asking about what is it that teachers have to do in the classroom? What happens when there's disruptions or bad behavior and so on? And by the time that this administrator went through what is expected of the teacher, I told her, I'm exhausted. Yeah. Like, when does she yeah. teach? Yeah. When, when does the academic happen? Yeah. You know? And we have to remove some of that from yep. the teacher so they can actually teach. Absolutely, and not, not have to deal with uh, ancillary social issues that are best left to the home. This was a short segment. We have a longer one coming up, Karen. Let me take a quick commercial break, and I want to talk to you about this transparency issue you have been all over. It's interesting. Uh, when um, when government institutions, school boards, for example, um, they are slow walking and trying to hide and conceal things from parents, that's really when the antenna should go up. And uh, Karen and her uh, friend Amy Carney, who's also running for school board, their antenna is up. Karen's going to tell us about the latest news, Scottsdale Unified, and their uh, efforts to conceal from the public what is truly going on there. So don't go away. Karen Werner and I will be right back. Again, her website, wernerforsusd.com, W-E-R-N-E-R-F-O-R-S-U-S-D.com. I'm Seth, she's Karen, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Are you concerned with stock market volatility? What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market? A portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. And there is no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily, you're paid monthly, and there are no fees. It's a secure and collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. And by investing with my friends at Y-Refi, you will be doing well by doing good for others. My friends at Y-Refi, they're local, they're trustworthy, they're honest. I know them well. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, up to 10.25%. Just go to investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com, or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. Thirty-four. Tell him Seth Liebson sent you. Karen Werner is our guest. She is uh, running for Scottsdale Unified School Board. Uh, Werner for SUSD.com is her website. Um, we were talking a little bit about why she ran in the last segment. And it's an ongoing reason, isn't it, Karen? The ongoing, um, the ongoing obfuscation, the ongoing lack of transparency, uh, the ongoing efforts to block transparency over at SUSD. I'm reading an article over at uh, the Arizona Independent. Scottsdale Unified accused of denying public records requests related to gender and sexuality topics. Set the stage. What's going on here, Karen? 
Yeah, so in July of this year, Scottsdale Unified, their leadership decided to make public public records requests public. So when I would go in to um, you know, request a public record, uh, now my name and is on their website, and it, it shows exactly what I submitted as the request. Which that's all fine and dandy, but I believe that they were doing that and try because they wanted to intimidate parents. Yeah, to chill you from acting. Yeah, to to chill you from seeking information. Of course, you ask for information, you're going to be known, and what you're asking about will be known too. Absolutely, and you know, in that article, it talks a lot about the the gender ideology and the pronouns and and the curriculum that was created for any town and all that. But but the situation of of blatantly disregarding transparency is so much bigger than those few items. On August 14th, I submitted a public records request requesting the exit survey for the teachers that had left the school from August 1st, 2021 to August 14th of 2022. And I did that for multiple reasons. One was that 30 special ed teachers left at the end of the school year in 2022, and I spoke with some of them. And um, they had some concerns about, and they had reasons why they wanted to leave, and they weren't just because they got a better job somewhere else. They, did, they didn't like the culture that had transpired in the school. And so I wanted to see what, is the, what are the teachers saying when they are leaving, right? So this is something that's very readily available for them. Mm-hmm. And to this day today, I just checked, it has not been filled. And if you read in the article that you just uh, mentioned, uh, you'll see that... Um, Jennifer McClellan, the counsel for Special Unified, said that, oh, they are filled in the order they're received. <laughs> well, there have been 10 <laughs> orders filled since I submitted my public records request in August, and the latest one that was filled was uh, filled on August 24th. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. You know, it, and, and what this does, it creates this trust, right? Yep, yep. And so right now, our community does not trust our school. And frankly, our school, our, our community deserves better. Yep. And we have to build that culture of trust and transparency, a culture where teachers want to stay in a place where people want to, you know, parents want to send their kids. And we have to have an accessible and accountable board to the community. I'm going to guess, Karen, um, that, and I, I would not ask you to disclose names. I don't want you to. But I'm going to guess that here and there a little bit you're getting um, messages from teachers or a teacher may come up to you and say thank you for doing this because I bet some of them feel kind of chilled or cowed from speaking up or trying to make waves once in a while too. I I bet that's happening. Am I right? You're absolutely right. It's probably on a weekly basis that a teacher or administrator is reaching out to me and and either, you know, happy that we're running and supporting us or have yet another issue that they're concerned with and so and that's been going on for over a year and a half and it's it's one of the reasons why i'm running yeah exactly right the um the 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 hit on um conservative or education reform-minded types is that uh and i and i guess movements like red for ed helped 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 instantiate this is that you know we're against teachers we are not we are doing everything we can to promote good and great teachers and you said it in the last segment and it's important that you did and i'll repeat it there are some excellent teachers out there there are some good schools out there too there are even some excellent ones but there's an awful lot of mediocrity 
And there's an awful lot of politics. And just heaven forfend if your children ends up with a mediocre, mediocre child or in one of these schools or, di- or one, of these, uh, one of these programs where they're doing things that, you know, with your kid and their brain and their emotions that are just offensive, not only to the parent, but to general common sense. That's about right, isn't it, Karen? Uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, there is a small select group of teachers and administrators that are supporting this national narrative that's coming into our schools uh-huh. uh, with the, the politics and the gender and the pronouns and all of that. And, sure. and, and it's very, very sad because I will tell you the majority don't want it, but they feel very silent. So when they're sitting in a meeting and I was talking to a administrator, actually a, an assistant principal that sits in meetings and he's just baffled at what he's hearing. However, he's silenced because he doesn't want to lose his job. That's right. No, there's that. That's right. And, and you know, these institutions, you don't have to use the word if you don't want to. I will. The progressive socialist pull and tug is based on that very that very thing, intimidation um, and knowing that your life will be made a little less comfortable if you do make waves, if you do stand up, if you do question the authority. I see it as your job to make it easier for them to do that. It is. We, we, we should make their life easier. And, you know, there's a, an initiative going around for the next session is to pay our teachers first. And Good. I really support that. I believe Good. that we need to pay our teachers first. We need to fund our classroom yep. before anything else. Good. So everybody's happy and everybody has what they need. Yep. Um, yep. So along with empowering our parents, we need to give our community a voice. And so whether you have a child in the district or not, um, your taxpayer dollars is going to fund our schools and your voice deserves to be heard. Absolutely right. This whole lack of transparency and uh, attempt to block transparency you know there's about three or f- three to five yeah let's let's say there's about five uh, items that Almost all education reformers would agree on that constitutes a good school that shows and indicates you have a good school. One of them is openness to parental feedback. One of them is openness to parental input. When they're blocking transparency, when they are even lying to you about the transparency, you know there is something rotten in the state of Denmark, and you know you are not dealing with a good school. You may be dealing with a good social engineering system. You're not dealing with a good school system, Karen. You're right, Seth. You're absolutely right. Well, God bless you, and uh, Godspeed to you. And, of course, Amy sent her my regards, and uh, looking forward to really good news after the election with you guys and the improvement of our schools and the uh, improved care nurturing uh, of our children's minds. Karen Warner, thank you very much for doing what you're doing. Absolutely, Seth. Thank you so much for your support. You betcha. com. That's WernerForSUSD.com. I don't have her website in front of me, but check out Amy Carney, too. And uh, let's start rolling up our sleeves and help these mama bears who are doing their utmost to not just save their children and their community's children, but our community. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. These hours with Hugh Holman go so fast. Uh, these days go by fast. But uh, Hugh Holman, thanks for spending some of your time and all of your brain with us. Um, we were talking right before the break about if the Republican victory is decisive enough, if, if it is obvious beyond peradventure that Americans are turning down what the Democrats are selling. Does that anywhere get us closer to bridging the divide that 
people, not always me, but a lot of people seem to wring their hands over. You understand the nature of the question. I do. And I think there is a condition on my answer. And I'll start by saying that we have the right to hold elected officials accountable. And as those folks who insisted on lockdowns, as one example, without constraint, now want to be uh, released from their bonds. Amnestitized. They want amnesty for having done to us because they're now saying, we didn't know, we couldn't know. And the answer is, yes, you could have. And those who were saying the opposite of what you wanted to hear were denigrated and eliminated from the airways and social media. I think about a line from a movie, A Year of Living Dangerously, in which a reporter ends up sort of investigating and understanding what was going on in Vietnam. And after he had been uh, in country elsewhere, he's now in the United States and ends up in a very short conversation about what happened in Cambodia. And he's talking about the fact that millions of people were murdered. And someone said, but we couldn't have known that that would happen. And the answer is, yes, you could have. Mm -hmm. And to be released from that obligation is our job. We cannot allow people to be released from being held accountable for their failures and errors when others took the risk and stood up and said, you are wrong and I will take the heat and the challenge and the difficulty for being so. Those politicians who did not stand up with us, you, me, Seth, and my son, Lewis, and shout from the rooftops as we did letters to the governor and to the legislature saying this is what the numbers say. This is what you could be doing. Stop doing stupid things. They should be held accountable. But it does require voters to be more fully involved and engaged. The second condition is the condition that it takes a great leader from the winning side. Mm-hmm. And that is someone like Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Because when he gave his first inaugural address, the country was being torn asunder because of that. And he wrote, quote, on the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. Here is a man trying to stop that war. But by concluding at the end of the four years of civil war, he then added in his second inaugural address, quote, with malice toward none. With charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are and to bind up the nation's wounds, to take care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to all do all that which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations." It will take a Republican who can stand for that and put up with Democrats who won't. Amen. Till tomorrow, God bless. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.